0: And welcome to the prologue. My name is Doug Dahlgren, and I'll be your host for this hour. Welcome and thanks to each and every one of you for listening out there, especially we want to remember our troops who are serving to protect us around this planet. Now, our program today takes us into the world of bank robbers and gangsters, thieves, robbers, and, when necessary, killers. Is this the Old West we speak of, or even the Roaring Twenties? Why, no. This is just a couple of generations back in the history of the South, our South. Is this fiction? Quite the contrary. The focus of this hour's book is quite real, and he is the namesake for a group the FBI termed the Dixie Mafia. The book is titled Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers. Its author is Dr. Maxwell Taylor Corson, Ph.D., And this is your prologue. His first bank job was in Screven, Georgia, a small town just southwest of Jessup. Willie Foster Sellers and another man borrowed a cutting torch from a local auto body shop. As darkness fell, the two broke into the bank through the back door and cut open a portion of the safe. The prize was several thousand dollars. Sellers said he and his gang burglared nearly three dozen banks, before changing to bank robbery. Sellers liked to live extravagantly and to travel. He had a penchant for cars, airplanes, and houses, all requiring large sums of money. Arrested on many occasions, Sellers was a master of escape, breaking free twice from an Alabama prison and once from the supposedly impregnable Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, Georgia. After years on the run and the listing on the FBI's most wanted list, Foster Sellers found himself in jail in Texas. It was there that fellow Appling County native Max Corson found him. That led to the book we're here to talk about this morning, and its author is here with us to tell us all about it. Welcome with me, please, Dr. Maxwell Corson. Dr. Corson, how are you doing this morning?
1: Doing well, thank you.
0: Very good. Glad to have you with us. Please tell us, who was Willie Foster Sellers?
1: Well, Willie Foster Sellers was a corn-fed country boy from Appling County, Georgia. Uh, like many kids of his age, he grew up during the Depression. He was from a country family, a, a farmer, limited income and, and uh, education. He went to Surrency High School. Uh, was active there in various and sundry things, and uh, later joined the Marine Corps. After that, he uh, decided that he would try his hand at a at a drive-in cafe, which was new at the time. It was on the baxley Sea Highway. Uh, he wasn't a very good businessman, and as a result, he lost his business, and this led him into the career of crime.
0: Now, there's a lot of ways you can go if a business fails, but uh, what exactly do you think inspired him to seek that life of crime?
1: Well, he told me that he had been inspired in large part by a well-known criminal of the 1940s and 50s named Willie Sutton, who specialized in robbing banks and who was well-known for having answered the question, why do you rob banks, and he said, That's where the money is. Willie Sutton later did commercials for American Express, in which he sold uh, traveler's checks, pointing out that they could not be used or stolen the way that cash could. So this was uh, the main inspiration, plus the fact that Foster uh, cared very much about his mother, he was very concerned about the fact that she had to work so hard all of her life. He wanted to steal a thousand. Oh, I'm sorry, he wanted to steal a million dollars so that he and she would not have to work.
0: Now, other than this inspiration from uh, the history, Willie Sutton, did he have any direct help uh, in becoming the master criminal that he actually was?
1: Oh yes, he was constantly learning new things. Uh, but one of his main assistants was a man in Savannah who uh, was able to teach him a great deal about how to, uh, how to open safes. And uh, so he, he learned from him and others along the way uh, the various techniques that uh, would work in uh, that line of um, activity.
0: Now, before we get too far into this conversation here, uh, I need to tell you, I have had many requests from folks in Baxley and elsewhere on how to get a copy of this book. It doesn't appear to be uh, readily available right now. The title, again, is Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers. Would you please, Dr. Corson, tell the folks how they can get a copy of this book for themselves?
1: Yes, they contact me directly. Uh you can um, send me a letter uh, to Dr. Max Corson, P.O. Box 305, Valrico, that's spelled V as in Victor, A-L-R-I-C-O, Valrico, Florida, 33595. The copy of the book is $25, and that includes postage and and, uh, shipping. And if anybody wants my signature, it's available free of charge.
0: Now, you have a website where they can find this information, do you not?
1: Yes. Uh, it's easy enough to find. It's my name, maxcorson.com.
0: All right. Very good. So, folks out there, that, it's that simple. These books are back in print, and uh, you can find them through, uh, through the good doctor himself. Now, Willie Foster Sellers never considered his crimes to be personal now, that's kind of an odd thing to say. Would you uh, would you explain that for us? What did he mean by that?
1: Well, he viewed the money in banks as being insured by uh, insurance companies and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So any money that he stole was going to be replaced by the FDIC. So that removed any personal uh, attachment to it.
0: So in his mind, it was no harm, no foul. just Well, the
1: yes, that there, there was a compensation, I suppose, would be the way. It was an interesting and really uh, questionable rationalization, but then if you go off oh, yes. a bank, uh, you're not going to be thinking along the same lines as people who go to Rotary Club meetings.
0: That's for sure. Now, Sellers was primarily a bank robber. How does that differ from burglary?
1: Well, he started off burglarizing banks. Now, being from a small town in southern Georgia, which is full of small towns, he and a couple of his cohorts, several of them from Alma, Georgia, would um, identify a, a small-town bank. They would visit it in the evening and would break into it, which was very easy. On one occasion, they found a window that was open. They just crawled in through the window. And uh, the vaults that were in these banks, uh, there was, a, of course, a heavy steel front on it, but the sides quite often were made out of brick. All you had to do was have a sledgehammer, and you knock down a hole in the wall and crawl into the vault, and uh, there the money was. So he burglarized banks until the banks got to the point that they were having uh, all over the country to install better equipment to, dis- to deter burglaries. And so at this point, he had no choice. He had to fall back on actually going into the bank during the daytime with a weapon and robbing it.
0: So what you're telling us is that he actually was his own worst enemy. He was so good at breaking into these standing safes. Today, when we think of a bank, we think of the big bank vaults. And Willie Foster Sellers was uh, a primary... uh, Reason and focus that banks across the country went to the vault system is that correct?
1: I would say that that is true. Uh, it was interesting though when the, he was doing his burglarizing, they would have to cut into the actual vault itself, and uh, this meant using a burning tool. And quite often, whenever they cut in through the door into the uh, into the, the safe, the uh, heat from the burning torch would scorch some of the money inside and the money inside would have little holes in it and that got to be called frog eyes and that made this kind of money very difficult to spend because the banks were constantly looking for it knowing that it had been stolen in a bank burglary somewhere sometime
0: Interesting point, the frog eyes little holes in the money from the heat Uh, heat Even though that had its downfall, he preferred burglary over robbery right up to the end, didn't he?
1: I think he did because there was less risk involved. There may have been less money also, but whenever he finally decided to go into bank robbery, um, naturally he had an unexpected experience. He and his gang usually went with two other people. Uh, decided they were going to rob this bank and they were going to wait for the late afternoon to do it. And so they trooped up to the front of the bank with their mask on and their guns in hand. And just as they got to the door, someone inside the bank stepped up and, uh, and locked the door for the day. So they couldn't get in. They're standing there on the sidewalk looking like what they were about to be, bank robbers. And they couldn't rob the bank, so they left and decided they'd practice up on their skills and they finally learned how to get into the bank before the door was locked.
0: So I guess they all had to buy pocket watches. Uh,
1: that would have helped, yes.
0: Or well,
1: There are several things that they did. One was they always stole two cars to use, and uh, they kept a police radio in one of the cars, and therefore they were able to uh, find out where the police were looking for them after the robbery had taken place.
0: Now, one thing, going back still to this difference between burglary and robbery, uh, he was very proud of the fact, and he tried to point out to you, that he was not a killer. And I think that enters into it, too, because like you said earlier, robbery had much more uh, possibility of somebody getting hurt. Isn't Isn't that the way he looked at it?
1: Oh, yes, that's quite true. In fact, the cover on my book shows a picture that the FBI had uh, distributed showing foster sellers with a a rifle and a mask on in the process of robbing a bank in South Carolina. And so there was always that risk. And some of the people he dealt with, he couldn't really count on them to be that cool-headed. But luckily, while he was doing bank robberies, based on what he told me, uh, he never shot anybody. But I would not say that Foster was never involved in in deaths, because directly and indirectly, I think he was. The thing is, he just didn't tell me everything, and I didn't expect him to.
0: Oh, no. Uh, In fact, he probably wanted to brag more about his prowess with the ladies, didn't he?
1: Oh, yes. Foster was a handsome man. I think that was one of the reasons he attracted so much attention. He was, he was, he was charismatic. Um, oh yeah. It, it's been said that some men are like catnip to women, and I think that would be a good way of describing the young Foster Sellers. And um, he had three wives, numerous girlfriends. His last wife, his third wife, was a striptease artist. He met in the Savannah Strip joint. Her advertisement was that she was the girl with the twin 44s.
0: (laughs) Well, we're going to hear more about that in just a couple of minutes. We're here this morning with Maxwell Corson, Ph.D. His book is Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers, and we'll be back right after these messages.
2: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare.
3: With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to
4: AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: And we are back. We are here today with Dr. Maxwell Corson. He has a very interesting book. It is a true story. title is Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers. And Foster Sellers is from south Georgia in an area known as Appling County. Now, for those wondering, Appling County is in the southeast corner of the state, nestled between Valdosta, excuse me, between Vidalia. Everybody knows the onions. It's between Vidalia to the north and Waycross in the Great Swamp to the south. Now, Sellers actually graduated from Serency High School, which is on the Jessup Highway going towards Brunswick, Georgia. So now everybody's got a good idea and a picture in their mind of the area we're speaking of. Now, Doctor, you actually graduated from uh, Baxley High School in the county seat. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. What kind of distance, what was the determination? Both of those schools, Cerency High and Baxley, are both in Appling County, but what was the determining factor, just where you lived?
1: Uh, I'm sure that was correct, and I'm sure that uh, especially your older listeners will remember the times in a rural county whenever there were a number of schools scattered about because of the difficulty in traveling, meaning there weren't any paved roads out in the country and you, you know, had to go to the nearest school. And so Foster went to the school in Surrency. Surrency was about 10 miles from Baxley, and it was very interesting that uh, his drive-in cafe was on the Baxley-Cerency Highway, and Foster used his convertible, his Ford convertible that he liked to drive around town. He used it to race his friends down that stretch of straight road between Baxley and Surrency to see who could get to the Surrency stoplight first.
0: Now, was this – my next question was going to be, he was somewhat flamboyant, I know – was he that way in high school, or or did this all happen afterwards?
1: I think he became more colorful as the time went on. Uh, he did the best he could. Sorensen was, I think it would be fair to say, it, in those days, it was a very limited experience. In, in Appling County, now there's one high school, Appling County High School, which means that the people who live in the Sorensen area are carried by bus into the Appling County High School during school uh, days. But back then, it was a separate entity, and um, he probably stood out because, if for no other reason, there just weren't that many people there to begin with. But later on, when he got into uh, his criminal activities, he attracted a great deal of attention. He got a particular attention from a publication in Texas called Texas Monthly, and it was forever and a day carrying stories about Foster and his striptease wife, and the various things they were saying and doing. And uh, this contributed to his reputation. Later on, uh, there were several organizations, including the CBS TV network, that wanted to do a uh, feature on him. So at the time, he was attracting a great deal of attention.
0: Now, you, you were a few years younger than he, and you were in a different school, but do you recall when you first became aware of Willie Foster Sellers? Was it back that early, or was it after when he became the robber and thief that we know of? Well,
1: back in those days, not everybody had a Ford convertible that he drove around town, so I remember seeing Foster driving around with a girl in his Ford convertible on several occasions, but that was before he got into a life of crime. That was just a nice-looking guy in a sporty car who was attracting uh, the girl of the day. Uh, later on, I became aware of his criminal activities because of the stories that appeared regularly about him in the Baxley News banner and in the Atlanta newspapers.
0: Well, now, that may answer uh, a, a story. I've got an uncle born down there. In fact, my wife, uh, my, my, wife my mother's entire family is from the Baxley area. And an uncle uh, named Ed Holland told me a story when he was in school at Searency High School, uh, several years older than Foster Sellers. But uh, my uncle was a part of the Searency basketball team. And it seems that Foster Sellers was a big fan and, and wannabe, would love to have been a member of the team, but he lacked size or lacked talent or lacked something. Uh, perhaps it was just his age, but he, he was not allowed to be on the team, and he also was not allowed to ride the team bus when they went to away games. But something that my mm-hmm. uncle recalled was when they would arrive at the away destination and unloading from the bus, there would be Foster Sellers standing there cheering and waiting for him. So ah. he, was, uh, he was quite a resourceful young man. Even That must have been eighth, ninth grade. Uh, so he really uh, was on his own and knew how to get what he wanted at that early age, wasn't he?
1: Yes, and he was quite determined. One of his early girlfriends was named Gloria, and she lived way on the other end of the county. And Foster would go courting, but he had to drive all those rough uh, car, uh, washboard roads, dirt roads, to get to her house. And he, he commented that it was it was a real trial to get there, and then having driven back into town to go to the movie or something like that than to take Gloria back in those doggone country roads. But he was determined, (laughs) and he did it.
0: Now, and we're talking probably, what, the 50s, early 60s at that point, or or mid-60s. Yeah. To to your knowledge, was there any record of him actually being a troublemaker while he was in school?
1: Not to my knowledge. In fact, um, at one point... Uh, When he was serving a prison term, I think it was in North Carolina, a uh, reporter from one of the North Carolina newspapers became fascinated with his story and wrote a series of articles in the newspaper. I think it was the Charlotte newspaper. Well, he and uh, the, the reporter and Foster got to be such good friends that Foster asked the reporter to represent him, Foster, at the next class meeting, in Surrency, and so the reporter went down to Surrency at the next class reunion and uh, gave them a, a letter that uh, Foster had written and uh, expressed general greetings to one and all on behalf of the imprisoned uh, Foster Sellers. So he, he, Foster, had a charm that could influence people to do things.
0: This book details that charm and details uh, a lot about the detail he went through in robbing banks, how he got into safes, uh, just really it's it's a very well-researched book. And let's get into a little bit about who you are and and how you were able to bring us this story in the way that you did. Now, you're a college professor, a retired college professor, and you received a bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Georgia and yet your Ph.D. is from the University of Hawaii. Now, I've got to ask you this. What brought you to Hawaii? And please, don't say an airplane.
1: (laughs) Actually, I drove most of the way. (laughs) Uh, uh, No, uh, the two degrees that I have from the university are in journalism, and that, of course, was the reason that I got interested in foster. I I knew it was a good story, and I knew nobody had told it. And so uh, that was the basis of my getting interested in trying to track him down. As far as the University of Hawaii is concerned, I had been working at a small college in Georgia. Uh, I went to a conference. There was a job posted on the bulletin board for uh, public relations work at the, at the University of Hawaii. I have curiosity. I just tried. I applied. They hired me. So off I went.
0: Super. Well, that's a pretty good Jump going over to Hawaii. And then I guess the Ph.D. just developed from that atmosphere and being there at that school.
1: Well, yes. I was drafted into the Army after I got out of college. Two years. Oh, I hated every minute of it, but I look back on it now with a great deal of pride. Anyway, because I had been in the Army and had an honorable discharge, I was qualified for the GI Bill. And my qualification days were running out while I was living in Hawaii. And so I decided, well, if I'm ever going to do anything with that, I better do it here and I better do it now. The American Studies program uh, was what appealed to me because it included uh, sociological considerations as well as historical, and um, it was sort of a catch-all degree. And so I qualified for it, and uh, using GI money, I, um, I, I was able to complete my degree and let me add on at least one occasion in Hawaii I went down to the to the beach Waikiki beach I propped myself up on a palm tree had a little bit of wine and some sourdough bread and began doing work for my PhD like a beachcomber I will always remember it
0: I'm sure you will now your earliest career was was in broadcasting and print journalism. Correct. Tell us a little bit about that, would you? What what all did you do, and where did you work?
1: Well, my first experiences were the uh, the, the brand new radio station in Baxley, W H A B, and I uh, was hired uh, to do an afternoon uh, afternoon uh, set. Uh, playing records and uh, doing things like that. I also did some work a year or two later at uh, a, a satellite station over in Hazelhurst. Uh, after I got out of college, I was I was hired to uh, be the news director of a radio station in Gainesville, Georgia, and I was there for a year until I got drafted. And while in the army, I spent two years doing public relations work at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, after that, I joined United Press International, which was a, an international organization of news gatherers. And from that, I went into college public relations and later on into college teaching.
0: And that eventually led us to the book we're here to talk about this morning, Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers. Dr. Corson, tell everybody again where they can get their own copy of this book, would you?
1: Yes, write to me, Dr. Max Corson, P.O. Box 305, Valrico, Florida, 33595. And Valrico is capital V-A-L-R-I-C-O, 33595. And the cost of the book is $25.
0: And that includes the shipping and everything. And your signature, if required,
1: right? That's right, free at no Mm -hmm. extra charge.
0: And then also an easier way would be to go to your website, and I believe the information is there. Tell the folks again what that website is, please.
1: Okay. It is maxcorson.com.
0: How easy is that? Can't do any better. The book, again, is Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers, and we're going to be back with Dr. Maxwell Corson after these short messages.
3: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you
2: to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show,
0: America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio.
4: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: And good morning again. We are here on the prologue at America's Web Radio. We're here this morning with the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Maxwell Taylor Corson. Uh, Dr. Corson has a book out uh, that's quite popular around the country. This is a true story about an actual gangster. And we're not going way back to the Roaring Twenties or even to the West. We're talking about the 1970s here in Georgia and the surrounding South. The book is called Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers. And we've got Dr. Corson here with us. We've been talking about his career, his education. He started out in his career in journalism and working with uh, radio stations and United Press International. That type of career it transitioned rather rapidly into teaching, and yet you managed to stay within the world of communications. Uh, which of those did you enjoy more, the actual reporting or the teaching?
1: All of the above. Uh, It was fun being a reporter. I made my share of mistakes and learned how to fashion a story that would get past an editor. And then later on, once I had my Ph.D., I realized that that qualified me to teach on the college and university level. And... um, because of my journalism degrees, I was qualified to teach in mass communications. So I continued my work uh, in, uh, in college teaching what I had learned um, as a reporter on the street.
0: As you watch the news these days, and I don't want to go too deeply into this, but do you see a difference in what you taught people and what you knew a journalist should be? Uh, as opposed to what you see today?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. First of all, and you'll see this any time you watch uh, a uh, news conference in the White House, reporters don't know how to ask questions. They know how to make speeches. And one of the main things they, they, uh, mistakes they make is asking questions that can be answered with one word, yes or no. Uh, the other thing is, and I see this particularly in the uh, newspapers that I'm reading today, is that there is a tendency by writers to want to inject their own opinion. Now, this was verboten whenever I was coming along, but it seems to be the new journalism uh, that uh, makes print media particularly more attractive uh, against the competing information that's on the Internet and, on, um, and on, uh, in, in television.
0: Do you think that this, this idea of being the news or being a part of the news rather than reporting it, are, are they being taught this, or is this just something that ego takes over and uh, they see others doing it and therefore
2: here we go?
1: Well, I suspect it's a little bit of both. Uh, if you have an instructor in college who has never done journalistic work but has a journalism degree, uh, he or she is not going to be able to speak with any great authority about uh, dispassionate journalism, and uh, since most uh, people who are in uh, mass communications today, uh, I, I'm convinced, want to go into one of two areas, they want to either become uh, television news reporters or they want to go into public relations, and so each of those uh, encourages the development of the personal, uh, the, the personal qualities rather than representing uh, a more dispassionate approach to what is going on.
0: By dispassionate, um, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but by dispassionate, are you saying that they lack respect for their audience, that they are so intent on the audience seeing a particular side of a story that they're not willing to just lay facts out and let the audience make up their own mind?
1: Well, Doug, if you have a cause to serve, you serve the cause. If you believe something and you're writing about it, yeah, you, these people today, uh, quite often, if, if their, their writing will be tinged with an opinion or a support of or condemnation of the topic about which they're writing. I regret this. I'm sorry to see it. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But uh, it certainly is not the kind of journalism that was, Uh, recognized as standard back in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and even
0: going into the 50s. Let's let's move along. Writing and storytelling is not a new subject to you, not at all. You've been published in many forms, and you've received many honors and awards for your own writing. Share a, a few of those with us. Tell us a little bit about your background in writing books and also in your journalistic efforts.
1: Well, I've done a great deal of writing uh, on statewide and national issues when I was with United Press International. That was, of course, print media, and it was information that was distributed to anyone who subscribed to the service. When I got into writing books, I have had some success. A book that I wrote about a man named Howard Coffin, who was an automobile pioneer and who Uh, at one time uh, was the man who greatly influenced the development of tourism along the coast of Georgia. Um, Writings that I did about him won two national awards uh, with the American Association of um, Antique Automobiles, and I also was a contributor to the New Georgia Encyclopedia on the topic of this man, whose name was Howard Coffin. I also had an article printed in the Georgia Historical Quarterly on the topic of Howard Coffin. The book being the "Prince of Detroit and King of the Georgia Coast." I also enjoyed a couple of awards for something that I wrote just almost as a um, on a whim. I did tried my hand at fiction. I wrote a book titled "The Pub Annie Chronicles" about a South Georgia hooker and a smart Italian college guy, and I won a number of awards with it. I was surprised. My wife was horrified, but um, (laughs) it turns out that uh, several of the things that I wrote caught the attention of of judges, and I I, I received several awards for that as well. So I don't think that I'll be getting a Pulitzer any time or a Nobel Prize, but I've enjoyed recognition, and I'm going to continue writing.
0: Well, we certainly hope you do. I've got to ask you. You were teaching at the time that, that I guess the idea for this book came about. What exactly prompted a college professor to write a book about a notorious bank robber?
1: Well, it had to do with with uh, proximity. I knew about Foster, and my journalistic background told me there is a story, and nobody's dealing with it, and you would better, meaning I, I'd better deal with it if no one else will. And so on the basis of that, I started a search for Foster because I didn't know where he was. And eventually I tracked him to the Texas prison system and uh, got in touch with him. He was a little skeptical at first. And um, I I think the main thing that sold him on uh, cooperating with me was the fact that we were both from uh, Afflin County. And so we began a multi-year connection mainly by writing although i did eventually go to texas to meet with him in person and uh, we were able to accomplish a great deal by uh, his sending me some things that he remembered i would write it up have questions about it or i might write it in a way that he disagreed he'd let me know we'd finally get everything in order and that would be the work done on that particular section but that's how it worked out and it was rather good listen Foster was a first-class intellect. That's one of the things that, that has to be reckoned. He was not your usual stupid guy who walks into a 7-Eleven with a banana in his hand to rob it. And so, dealing with an intellect with an intellect of that caliber, even though he was not a college uh, college man, he was able to to recall a great deal of information and to express it in a way. That was, that was interesting, and that, was, that was, uh, was understandable. And I was able to work with it from that to edit, to write, to do my own research, and to come up with what ended up being uh, the story about Foster Sellers.
0: Now, by the time you actually had the face-to-face meeting with him, you had been communicating, you said, over a period of years? Almost, uh, 10, by years. Yes, almost, almost 10, ten years. Yes, almost ten
1: years. It can be done. You don't have to sit down uh, with a person with a, with a notepad and a pencil in, in your lap and, and take notes. This was done by mail, and it worked out just fine, again, because Foster was capable of expressing himself on paper. And so that, that period? If, if, he, if he had been um, uh, unintelligible, or incapable of expressing himself, I wouldn't have touched it. It just wouldn't have been worth it.
0: Oh, no. But also, I guess where I was going is that over that period of time and the communications back and forth, that developed a confidence in both of you. You just described yours, but it also gave him the confidence that you were going to do justice to his story. Uh, What was that face-to-face meeting like? There had to be butterflies in the stomach and all that sort of thing. Uh, not to ask a stupid TV reporter question here, but what was that like when you actually sat down across the table or however it happened with Willie Foster Sellers?
1: All right, Doug. Imagine that you're a college professor who's never even gotten a traffic ticket. Here I am walking into a prison operated by the state of Texas. I didn't even know how to get through the gate without somebody coming up and showing me what button to push to let me in the first of several gates just to get into the prison. I met him in a um, sort of a, um, a, a conference room. It had uh, machines in it that you could get drinks and candy. There were some tables and chairs. First thing I did was walk over to buy some, a drink, and a prison guard came over and stopped me and Says said, you have to have permission from me before you buy anything for a prisoner. So things were, shall we say, structured. But we were able to converse without any difficulty, and um, eventually I more or less got on to what was happening that day uh, there at the prison.
0: Draw us a picture. Was this the big heavy glass in the two telephone receivers, or was it actually sitting down across no, no. the table?
1: Right, it was side by side, sitting at the table. The problem that uh, ultimately resulted in Foster's death in, I think, 2004, was that he was suffering from t- diabetes, and he had a heart condition, and um, that, plus having spent years and years in prison, uh, had taken its toll. He was not the handsome young boy that is depicted in some of the photographs in the book that were taken uh, back in the 1950s and the 60s. He was, he was, he, he was worn, he was tired, um, a little bit uh, antsy, But uh, he understood that uh, he and I had to talk, and he shared some of his ideas and concerns with me, and I told him as best I could what I was trying to do to get the book published.
0: Again, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Dixie Mafia Gangster, The Audacious Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers, and believe me, it is worth your time. Doc, tell them again right quick what that email address is, or excuse me, what your website address is, how they can get in touch
1: website is my name MaxCorson.com.
0: Thank and there's you. an address and everything else there associated with that we're hey, going to be back yeah yes. so yes. we're going to be Jeez. back in just a couple of minutes. Okay. we are going to take these breaks. All right thank you sir and uh, uh, this is America's America's web radio. this is the prologue. we'll be back shortly.
4: This is Michael Gonneau with the Middle East Research Center Limited bringing you insight to Israel, the truth about the greatness of the Jewish state and its struggle for sovereignty and security every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com any time you like.
2: From Doug Dahlgren, an action series that grabs you and won't let go. Four members of Congress all die within months. Each death appears to be from natural causes, but when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long dead Revolutionary War heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search uncovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun, Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, in Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com.
3: Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out, and when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF.
4: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Good point, David. Thank you. And good morning. We are here on the prologue. This is America's Web Radio. And once again, we're here with Dr. Maxwell Corson. And Dr. Corson, that last name is spelled C-O-U-R-S-O-N, for those out there looking up that website, maxcorson.com, so they can get their order in. And the cost of the book is $25. That includes autograph, postage, and handling. So get in there and get those things ordered. Uh, I believe it will direct you to a address in Florida, uh, and he'll get these things mailed out directly to you. Dr. Corson, I understand that in your conversations with Uh, Mr. Sellers, that he had a particularly favorite day to rob a bank. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. One of the reasons the FBI had such a difficult time catching Foster was that he planned everything very carefully. I mentioned earlier about having two cars, the so-called hot car that they drove up to the bank in, and then after having robbed the bank, they found the uh, so-called cool car that the police didn't know anything about and used it to escape. But uh, one of the things that Foster did was to rob small banks on Thursdays. And the reason was that on Thursdays, the banks had money for the payroll that would be paid out on Friday. So if you want to rob sense. a bank, you go the day when there's the most money. And Thursday was the day.
0: Very good. Well, I, when you think about it, that makes perfect sense. Well, listen, yes. I've got to confess. I'm, I've got family, deep family roots in Appling County. I think I mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, but I had not heard about Foster Sellers at all. And if I had, uh, I think his run at crime was uh, around the time that I just got out of the military and was starting a family back here uh, in the Atlanta area. But I, if I heard about him, it didn't resonate with me. I have a cousin who still is in Baxley named James Wince. He came up to me at a family gathering not long ago and told me, you've got to look into this book. You've got to try to get in touch with this man who wrote it. It's tremendous, and it's about Baxley." And I'm thankful to James. I mean, he set me on to this, and I was able to find you. Uh, And because of that in talking to relatives, I learned that my uncle, Ed Holland, is the gentleman who actually went to school in Cersei with Foster Sellers, and he's had stories and stories to tell. We shared one of those. And then at another recent family gathering, it wasn't the most pleasant one of all, but we had to get-together down there a couple, three weeks ago, I actually had the pleasure to meet and speak with uh, Mr. Johnny Acock. Now, he is the brother of Clara Acock, who is prominently mentioned in your book. Please tell the folks a little bit about who Clara Acock was.
1: Well, uh, Clara Acock was one of Foster's uh, hometown girlfriends, and they had contact off and on over the years. When Foster went into the Texas prison system for the last time, it was Clara Acock who took Foster's mother all the way from Baxley over into Texas to meet on several occasions with Foster. So she was a a dependable um, assistant in every way to Foster's family and staying in touch with Foster over the years when he was uh, being in prison. And, in fact, I dedicated the book to her because of her loyalty and her help to Foster
0: and his family. Now, Foster, this is one of the ladies that he knew from back in the day in Baxley, and she proved to be, uh, like you said, quite loyal and and dependable to him and the family. But Foster was quite a ladies' man. You mentioned this a little earlier. Uh, Share a little bit more quickly about... uh, why was it that he was such a magnet, a chick magnet?
1: I'll tell you the truth, Doug. You'd have to ask a woman about that more than I. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he, he had charm, and he had looks. And uh, he, uh, he, he, he described his appeal this way. He said, my success with women, in addition to my looks, was probably because I never disrespected any of them. I would not talk vulgar in front of them. And if they were prostitutes, I respected their chosen profession. Whoever they were, Foster said, I tried to treat them as ladies, and I was a giver rather than a taker. Now, that's the end of a direct quote from the great Foster sellers.
0: Bank robber or not, I think that's probably a pretty good uh prescription for how to get along with the opposite sex
2: and basically treat them
0: with respect yes it would yes now he didn't care a lot for that label he was he was put into and we've mentioned it many times part of your part of the title of your book but he didn't care for the label as being part of the dixie mafia he much more liked being called part of the dawson gang now what was the difference why did he like that title and not the other
1: okay the FBI apparently invented the term Dixie Mafia to identify or to set aside for identification purposes uh, a series of unrelated crimes in the South by Southern men, mainly stealing cars and breaking into banks. And so the FBI, in order to uh, to make this a more important thing, especially when they arrested any of them, was to identify them as the Dixie Mafia uh, inferring that they were like the Mafia of the Northeast and the Midwest, which was essentially Italian families. They're apples and oranges to compare the two. And Foster was horrified that the FBI had put that label on him. As far as being in the Dawson gang, that was a misnomer. The the law officers remembered back in the days of the Wild West, there was the, the... Dalton Gang, and so one of Foster's associates, who happened to be the youngest one in the, in the gang, was named Dawson, and so somebody passed that word on to the media during one of the times whenever Foster and this fellow were under arrest, and so the term Dawson Gang, gang uh, developed, but it was probably the most inappropriate title of all because the, uh, the, the guy whose name it was was the least important person in the gang.
0: Okay, but he liked that. He
1: he enjoyed not yeah, being he, he, directly... He, he got a certain sense of, 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 of pleasure out of it, especially by teasing the kid whose last name was Dawson, saying, well, boss, what are we going to do today? And then the kid okay. would be embarrassed, and he'd say, don't ask me, I ain't running things.
0: Okay. Now, for those who are wondering, I guess we need to cover this. There's actually no connection between what was known as the Dixie Mafia and the Italian gang that uh, stretches, stretches over into uh, northeastern United States, is there? Uh, That
1: is correct. The, um, the, the Dixie Mafia was, tell you the truth, Doug, the Dixie Mafia uh, was invented by the FBI, but it was anybody, any criminal who wanted to call himself that. There was a Dixie Mafia gang down in the Biloxi, Mississippi area. It had nothing to do with Foster, and they were involved in a number of killings. Um, so Dixie Mafia was, um, it was a tattoo anyone could put on his arm if he wanted to.
0: Okay. Now, there were several stories involving airplanes in the book. Uh, and the names Abernathy and Clinton actually come into uh, play in, in the story of the airplanes. Real quick, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, Foster realized very quickly that if he could fly an airplane, he could get away from the site of a robbery much quicker. And so he took flying lessons, and, um, was a, and he owned several airplanes during his career. Uh, what I think you're referring to is at one time when he was living in Arkansas and had landed his plane at an airport, uh, he uh, saw another airplane land, and a group of men in, in dark suits got out. Foster was in a panic. He thought it was the FBI coming after him. No, it was the attorney general of the state of Arkansas, a man named Bill Clinton. And so they shook hands, and how do you do And or how do you do? And uh, that was his contact with a future president. But I think he was quite glad to know that they were not members of the FBI coming to arrest him.
0: I'm sure, and he also uh, the connection with the name Abernathy has to do with Peachtree to Cab Airport up here, and the uh, what was known then as Epps Flying Service.
1: Is that Yes. Right? yes. Uh, he, Foster would uh, would land there with a plane that, the size of flew, which I think was single engine for the most part. You didn't land at uh, Hartsfield International, so you landed at an airport over on to the side of the city, and that was also a place where he bought and sold airplanes, and he always paid cash. And uh, I think I'm trying to remember, I think on one occasion he came up to to a man to buy the airplane, and he handed the man cash um, in a McDonald's uh, paper
0: sack. (laughs) You, You like to carry money around like that. Listen, real fast, you've written other books, of course, but I understand you're working on another story now. Tell us real quick about that.
1: Yes, I'm in the midst of this one. This one has not been published. I'd say it's about a third of the way through. Unbeknownst to me and unsolicited, I received in the mail a few months ago a huge packet of papers uh, the life story of a man who had spent 20 years as a, uh, as a carnival uh, crook. He uh, ran games that swindled people out of uh, money and the, the games that you could play on the Midway in the carnival. And after that, he became a, a burglar um, robbing houses and um, uh, the like um, in 43 of the 50 states. And so I'm working on this right now. Uh, the working title of it is, is Carney Crook. Carney is, of course, a slang for carnival. And um, it's been very interesting. I'm learning all sorts of things about carnivals that I never had the slightest idea applied. And it was quite... The criminal aspect of it was quite extensive and uh, quite profitable.
0: Well, we look forward to that one, and I want to ask you right now, will you come back and talk to us about it when you have it out and published?
1: I'll be glad to. I'm sure you remember, um, Doug, in the 18th century there was a man named James Boswell who wrote a biography of Samuel Johnson, a well-known writer of the day. I'm beginning to feel like the James Boswell of the bank robbery and the burglary set in the United States. <laughs> so we'll see how that works out.
0: Well, we hope so. We hope that works well, and we hope people will look into your book, Dixie Mafia Gangster, The thank Audacious you. Criminal Career of Willie Foster Sellers. And thank you so much for being here this morning.
1: Yes, sir. Glad to do it.
0: Now, folks, if you have any comments about our show, I'd love for you to email me, or if you would like to be a guest in a future program, also email me at Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd really love to hear from you, so get on the get on the computer and let me know what you think of the program. So until next time, I want to thank again Dr. Maxwell Corson. I hope you all have a great weekend. Maybe you can read a book, maybe Dr. Corson's or perhaps one of mine. And yeah. remember, I'll see you all again in just 167 hours